today we're going to see what happened when Jesus had a homecoming. When he came back to his little hometown of Nazareth and preached a message. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of homecomings. There's the homecoming on American Idol. Anybody, any American Idol watchers in here? They get to those final three. They get a special flight home. They get a limousine. And their whole hometown comes out. And yeah, they're here. They get to sing at a park. And their hometown's going nuts, welcoming them home. That's one kind of welcome home. I think about Super Bowl teams. This year, the Cardinals have a very unique possibility. Eight and one right now. The Super Bowl is going to be played in their stadium. Can you imagine the homecoming parade if the Cardinals bring that home? on their own turf. That would be amazing. There's also homecomings where the response is less than pleasing. You think about the way many of our Vietnam vets were received back into our country. They had done as they were instructed, and unfortunately the initial response to them was cold and a cold shoulder. Homecomings can take many different feels. What happens when Jesus goes home and preaches a message? We're going to look at that today and what it has to do Uh, with you and I. So let's start in Luke chapter 4, verse 14. It says right there that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. That's been key, his whole ministry so far. You remember at his conception, at his baptism during his temptation, we hear about him being filled with the Spirit. He returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. What we learn from this is before he comes to his hometown to preach this message, he's been getting around. He's been teaching. He's been doing miracles and word is beginning to spread. The initial response is, this is awesome. I want to know this guy because look at what he's doing. The book of John, you know these gospels all tell the story of Jesus from different perspectives. We believe that everything that happened from John 119 to 445 happened before he came back to Nazareth here. So some of the things you'll remember in there, he began to gather his disciples as John the Baptist sent them towards Jesus. He turned the water into wine at the wedding in Cana. You can imagine how how popular that'll make a guy. Then he went and cleared the temple. That, That created some tension in Jerusalem. He did that a couple times in his ministry, one at the beginning and one at the end. He talked to Nicodemus, the Pharisee that he met at night, and said, you must be born again. He baptized people with his disciples. He talked to the Samaritan woman at the well who went back to her city and told them, come meet this this one who's told me everything I've ever done. And many, many there were saved. So he's been getting around. And now you can imagine in his hometown, he's got family, he's got a mom. We don't know, maybe his dad has passed away by this time, but his mom, the, the the anxiousness. Have you ever had a, a child that, that went away and you hear that he's coming home? Oh, I can't wait to see him. His brothers and sisters. What's he going to say here in the, the synagogue? His, his neighbors, his friends that he grew up with? You know, it's probably this, this mix of curiosity. Uh, maybe some already had a little jealousy, a little suspicion. But we're going to watch what happens. He's going to go to his synagogue. Verse 16 says, He went to Nazareth, his hometown, where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, it was Saturday, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. Now, I just want to stop there. 
as was his custom, tells us something important about Jesus. Until he left home, it was his custom to weekly meet with the people of God at the synagogue. This is where the Jews worshipped. And you think of all the excuses people have for not meeting together with the people of God. And the excuses that Jesus could have had. I mean, he's the only one that really could have said, all those people around me are a bunch of sinners. He wasn't. And yet he continued to meet with the people of God who wanted to worship God and, and hear from his word. Can you imagine? We know that he grew in wisdom. He didn't get it all in one batch. But by the time he got to 29, 30 years old, I imagine he had all kinds of wisdom about God and his truth. How critical he could have been of the, the people who taught in the synagogue. <laughs> yeah, I know that. Come on. <laughs> but he wasn't. He continued to meet with the people of God. It was a priority for him. Hebrews later tells us, do not forsake the assembling together of yourselves. If there's ever anyone who had an excuse not to meet with the people of God, it was Jesus. And yet it was his custom on a week in, week out basis. The service was a familiar one. Just like we get into our familiar service orders, you know, a couple songs, a message, and then a couple more songs. They had their, their service order as well. Someone would stand up and invite God's blessing on the service. Someone else in the synagogue would read from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Then there'd be a prayer. And there would be a reading from the law in the Old Testament and the prophets. And it was cool because whoever read that, and it was a different man every week. Sometimes it was someone in the congregation. Sometimes it was a visiting rabbi or teacher. Whoever read that, they would stand for that portion. They would read God's word in honor of the fact that these are the, the words of God. And then when they came to teach their thoughts, their interpretation of what that passage said, they would sit down. I thought, what a, what a great picture of their honor for God's word. They would read the word standing up, then they would teach sitting down. It would be a brief sermon, and then at the end, someone would say a closing prayer or a benediction. This day, we, we don't know if Jesus had done this before. You know, any, any man in the congregation would have been eligible to. Maybe he did. You know, in his 20s or, or late teens, Jewish, Jewish boys became considered sons of the covenant at 13. Maybe he did, we don't know for sure. But this day he got up there and it says, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And these synagogues, they usually had a couple cubbies in a, a wall. And there was a synagogue attendant who would grab the scroll for the book for that day, well, the reading. And he would hand it to the teacher who was going to read that. So this attendant hands it to Jesus. And we don't know if he read more than this. Most likely he did, but he, he camped on this passage here. It says, Jesus unrolled it. He found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Now up till now, they haven't heard anything unusual. They've probably heard the, the scroll of Isaiah read many times before. 
Jesus sits down, all the eyes are locked on him. What's, what's this hometown boy who's gone out and begun his ministry going to say? Can you imagine their shock when he said, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You imagine the whispers and the looks around the room. What in the world is he saying? Is he really saying what it sounds like? He's saying that, that he is the Messiah that's spoken of in Isaiah, that we've been waiting for, that he's the one who came to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners. And what we see here is something interesting. A lot of times when it comes to our walk with God, we slip into two mistakes. What we read in the Bible becomes one of two things all too often, and it stops there. Either ancient history or something we expect in the future. So often we forget that God not only works in the past and the future, he is at work today. That's what Jesus is telling these people. This scripture is fulfilled in me. It's one characteristic of Jesus' ministry that sets him apart from many other teachers. The things he said about himself. His message wasn't only believe in God and do these things and you'll be right with God. He would often say, believe in me. He would say things like, you've heard the prophets say this, but I say this. You remember in other places it says they were amazed at his teaching because he spoke as one who had authority. What's the root word in authority? Author. (laughs) Jesus is the living word of God. He taught like no one else had ever heard teaching. When he teaches about himself, he, he points out that I'm not just telling you a path over here to take. I'm telling you I am the path to life. So what Alexander McLaren says, I venture to say that his self-assertion is only warranted on the supposition that he is the Son of God and his work is the salvation of the world. If he is the Son of God, if he that hath seen me hath seen the Father, Jesus also said that, if the revelation of himself which he makes is the revelation of God, if his death is for the life of the world and if when we honor him, we honor God, when we trust him, we trust God, when we obey him, we obey God, then I can understand his persistent self-assertion. But otherwise, does he not deliberately intercept emotions which are only rightly directed to God? Does he not claim prerogatives such as forgiveness of sins bestowal of life, answering a prayer which are only possessed by the divine being. The long quote, what's he saying? He's saying, same thing C.S. Lewis and Josh McDowell and many others have said, you cannot make the mistake of assuming Jesus was only a good teacher and nothing more because he made claims about himself that said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the son of God, the path to salvation. And if he lied about those He was not a good teacher. If he was speaking the truth, he's so much more. But what did he come to do? I love those descriptions, to proclaim good news to the poor. We don't believe he's only talking about those who are financially poor. He's talking about those who realize they have a desperate dependence and need for God in their lives. He came to proclaim good news to them. You ever feel like that? Man, I am desperate here. 
I need some supernatural help or I am going down. He says, I came to proclaim good news to you. And he says, today it's fulfilled. The poverty of sin is an interesting topic. We think about sin. One man described it this way. Thieves sometimes beset travelers from the gold mines as they're bringing down their dust or their gold nuggets to market. And they empty the pockets, the, the pouches of the gold and fill them up with sand. That is what sin does for us. It takes away our true treasure and fools us by giving us what seems to be solid till we come to open the bag. And then there is no power in it to buy anything for us. You ever been there with your sin? The enemy comes, your flesh comes and says, Hey, this is the key to your satisfaction. You live in it for a while and you come to the end of the road and say, Man, this is leaving me empty. It's leaving me broke. He says, I came to proclaim good news to those people. I came to present freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free. And I've come to do it today. I think about that today and I thought about three stories that I wanted to share with you of examples today in 2014 where I see God doing this today. It's not only a thing of the past, it's not only something we pray for tomorrow. He's on the move today. One of those examples is some stuff going on in our street. Our missional community spends a lot of time praying for our street. Uh, we have a lot of potlucks and Halloweens there as a Halloween parties there in our driveway around a fire, just in an attempt to build relationships with people on our street. And over the past seven years or so, those relationships have begun to grow. And God's created these connections. A couple weeks ago, there was a lady on our street in her mid-50s. We didn't know what happened. We, we saw a fire truck and a police car at her house a, f- a few houses down. Next day, we came to find out she was in her closet getting ready for work. And evidently, she just keeled over and died right there getting ready for work. As the, the word spread around the street, there was the, the grief. She had been at some of the parties. She knew many of us. She had invited others of us to some parties at her house. The, the street was broken and I was out doing some yard work one morning a couple days after that happened and there's a a lady on our street in her 70s that knew this gal who had died more than most of us. And she walked down the street. I saw her just sort of looking at the road, downhearted. And I said, hey. And uh, she walked over and she just, for like five or ten minutes, began to tell the story she remembered of this gal who had died. And then she began to cry. And I listened and uh, put my hand on her shoulder. And I said, could I pray with you? I pray with you. And she let me pray right there for, for her, her and our, our, all of our grief and the family of the gal who had died. And afterwards she said, thanks for listening. God wants to use us today to, to bring this healing to our streets, to our workplaces, to our neighborhood, to be that presence of Jesus. I think of a phone call I got on Friday. This blew my mind. I looked at my cell phone and it said New York. I'm like, New York? I better check this. I don't really know anybody in New York. And I answer the phone and say, hello? And this lady says, hi, is, is this the church next door? And I said, yeah, this is Scott Mitchell. I'm the pastor there. She said, uh, could I 
give you a prayer request. I got something that's been weighing on me. And before she gave it to him, I said, absolutely, we'll pray with you. But can you tell me, like I saw your area code in New York, are you still there or are you here now? She said, oh, I'm still here. I live in the Bronx. She said, I got a son named Clark who's 25 years old in the Bronx. And he's walking down a path that's destructive to him. She didn't go into detail, but you think about a place like the Bronx, you can imagine the possibilities. And she said, I just want prayers for him that, that God would turn his life around. And I said, well, we'll pray, but can I ask you just a random question? She says, sure. And I said, what kind of music does Clark like? And she seemed real hesitant to tell me because she's talking to a pastor, right? You know, like, <laughs> I don't think she knew what the reaction was going to be. She's like, he likes, uh, you know, I hear him listening to that, uh, that rap music. <laughs> she says, I like the old soul stuff, but he likes that, that rap stuff. And I said, well, Man, it's funny, of all the pastors in the whole United States, and especially in little Prescott Valley, Arizona, that you could call, you call a pastor that happens to really like rap music. Have you ever heard of a guy named Lecrae? Because Lecrae, as you've heard me talk about, he's a Christian rapper who came out of a, a dark past. You know, drugs around him, gangs around him, all sorts of temptations around him, and Jesus set him free. And she said, that's funny you should say that. My daughter just told me about him last week. And she, she said, she showed me some of his videos on, on Google. And I said, well, let me tell you about one that he has. It. If you type in, I am second in Lecrae, he tells his story of how God set him free from his own dark past. And she's, you can hear her writing it down. And then we pray together just for Clark to, to find that whatever he's looking for can only really be found in, in Jesus. And at the end, she said, I really feel like this was a divine appointment. And I said, I do too. And I said, if, if Clark ever wants to talk, you've got my number. Feel free to let him, have him give me a call. God's on the move today, even from the Bronx to little Prescott Valley. <laughs> she just found us on Google. Her daughter just said, find a church on Google and call for some prayer. <laughs> One more, and this one's even closer to home. I, I asked this guy if I could share this. He, he doesn't go to church here. And I'm sure most of you, not all of you, don't know him. I asked him if, he could share, if I could share this story because it's a story of God looking to set the captives free right today. It was probably uh, sometime earlier this year. I met up at this place on a project with a guy that I knew. I didn't realize I knew him. We, we had known each other from a while back, but he, he knew me. And when we finished the project, he said, hey, could we meet up? Could we meet up sometime? I'm like, sure, let's, let's meet up. So I met him for coffee one day. We sat down for coffee, and immediately this guy began to bawl. I said, after he bawled for a while, I said, can you tell me a little bit what's on your heart? And he said, well, there's something i got to share with somebody for some accountability. He said, uh, I promised God that if I met somebody I knew I could trust, I would share it. And then I saw you the other day. I said, well... I'm here, man. What, what's on your heart? And, and this man began to pour out his heart. And I so appreciated his honesty and his soft heart toward God. He said, I've been married for decades. I've been married for decades. And just a couple months ago, I went to New Orleans on a business trip. And I set up a liaison with a man and had sex with him. 
And he said, I, I hate myself for doing it. He said, I, I'm broken inside. I don't know what to do, where to turn. But he said, it was, was within a day of two of me, or two of me telling God that if I saw somebody I could trust, I, I saw you. And so he poured it out there, and, and I asked him, where did it start? He said his dad had given him pornographic videos as a child. Here, check this out. And it just began that, that cycle in his life. And now he had this secret in his decades-old marriage. And as we talked about it, he said, I, I'm so broken about it. I said, have you confessed it to God? And we looked at David's prayer of confession in Psalm 51. Because he had come to trust in Jesus earlier in his life. He, he believed in Jesus, gave his life to him, but the enemy assaulted him. His flesh sold him out. And he gave in to it. So I took him to Psalm 51 and he, he began to pray through that prayer to God. Cleanse me, O Lord. To claim Jesus' forgiveness. And then we talked about what's next. You need to talk to your wife. You can imagine the battle there. I mean, I don't want to talk to her. We, we got a really good thing going. But as he came to realize, I need to tell her. He told his wife. <laughs> We met together, the three of us, a couple weeks after that. And she shared her pain and her hurt and her sense of betrayal. And we prayed together. Long story short, months later, they're making a go of it. That <laughs> They're plugged into church. He's, he's told her everything. He's walking in steps of victory to restore his marriage. She's walking in so much forgiveness towards him. And I think about a God who longs to work today. I mean, if he can set a captive free in that situation. I think about our situations in our lives. What, what are you battling today? What's holding you back from the life God has for you? Do you believe that He wants to work today in your life? Because He can and He does. Anyhow, you can be sure that shocked those people, Him saying, I'm this one. And it's happening today. And we're going to look at the fickle response of the crowd. How many of you know that people are fickle? <laughs> You've experienced it. <laughs> you think you're at home and you're supposed to have a home field advantage. It doesn't always work that way. At first it did. Verse 22 says, All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that come, came from his lips. People love it when we preach the, the, about God's grace and and His mercy in our lives. That's always a, a popular message, and it's a, a key message. They love that. But then their skepticism started to come in. It, you don't see it so much in the first phrase, but you'll see it in what Jesus knows of their heart. They say, isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. And when you look at what Jesus is about to say, we don't believe it's just like, hey, isn't that Joseph's boy? It's like, isn't this just the kid from down the street? Isn't this the kid that scraped his knee when he was six and came home crying to Mary? Isn't this the, the carpenter that helped me with that project and I, I smelled his B.O. as he lifted up that wood? I mean, I don't want to sound irreverent, but these are the kinds of thoughts. This is a human being that grew up with him. You can imagine their skepticism. He's saying he's the Messiah? How can this be? They're skeptical. It's, it's hard to go back to your hometown sometimes. We're about to have Thanksgiving and Christmas. And I know for many in this room, when you get around your family and friends, especially maybe those who don't yet believe in Jesus, there's a tension, right? He's a Christian. I remember what he did when he was 12 years old. 
what, she reads her Bible now? <laughs> I remember high school. I mean, for me, I, I think of one silly example. It would be really hard for me to go back to my hometown and teach about fire safety because there's a local legend of me and a, a group of my friends in a residential neighborhood sitting around a fire, and it's a true legend. We're, we're sitting out there in the backyard, all kinds of houses around, throwing bottle rockets in just to see which way they'd fly out. And uh, we didn't know that while those bottle rockets were whistling out there, one of the neighbors had called the police. We didn't know that, so in the meantime, we had another great idea. Let's all pee in a glass jar, screw the lid on real tight, and throw it in the fire. <laughs> see what happens. <laughs> great idea, right? No, but it was in my upper teens. I was much too old for this. <laughs> so we threw it in there. Police officer pulls up. And as he's walking up, we hear this jar just... <laughs> pressure's building. And uh, he says, some of the neighbors said, yeah, well, there's some bottle rockets back here. Uh, could you please keep it down? And we're all just eyes locked on the the jar like please don't explode please don't explode please don't explode (laughs) long story short thankfully as soon as he got back in his car that jar fire out horrible stench in the backyard (laughs) all I have to say if I I go back there and try to teach about fire safety what's going to (laughs) happen I'm going to get laughed right out of there right for Jesus it's not sin or foolishness it's just hey He's fully human. Yeah, he's fully God, but what most people saw was the fully human. What, what's he talking about? So he goes on in verse 23 to address their skepticism. He hits it head on. He doesn't run away from skepticism in people's lives. He wants to touch them where it's at. He says, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you'll tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. That, that whole passage of the physician heal yourself and do in your hometown what we've heard you did over there is all designed to say, we've heard this stuff, now prove it. Let's see what you got. Let's see what you got. And surely he could have at that very moment. If Jesus only cared about popularity and what the crowds thought, I mean, he could have put on a show like no other. He had the power to do that, but he wasn't interested in that. He was interested in doing what his father had for him to do. His, his miracles were all, always closely tied to his message. He wasn't into merely putting on a, a magic show. But that's what these people want. They're skeptical. And you remember that he would encounter this many times in his ministry. Later on, there was a time where he was in a house jammed full of people. And it says that his mother and brothers thought he was out of his mind. What's he doing with all these people in this house? He's He's crazy. We gotta bring him home. What what's wrong with him? There was another time where he was hanging out with his brothers and they said, Why don't you go to Jerusalem and do this stuff? Because if you're really a prophet, you don't want to just hide it here. And John tells us the reason they told him that, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. He knew about those close to home rejecting him. Maybe you know that too. And I think a couple things from this. One, when, when you experience that rejection from family and friends, when you go to spread the, the good news of Jesus, know that you've got a Savior who understands. He's been there and He can relate to you and give you grace and mercy to, to proceed through that. Also, 
I want you to see something. He, he wasn't moved by their fickle desires. You remember he reacted the same way later on. Remember Herod wanted to see some magic tricks to, from Jesus and Jesus wouldn't do it. There was a time where he went to Jerusalem and it says he, the people believed in the signs that he was performing but Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind for he knew that what was in each person. He, he didn't respond very well to people that were only after a magic show. He wanted people to come to him acknowledging their need for a savior and embracing him as that savior. What he did care about was God's mission for his life. His father's mission mattered so much more to him than popularity. He could have put on a magic show, got the crowd all riled up in his favor right there, but listen to what he does. He, he instead goes on to tell them the most inflammatory thing he probably could have said. Why? Because it's his father's mission. Verse 24, he says, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Lots of widows in Israel at that time, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Someone outside of Israel, God's prophet was sent to. You remember the story. She was afraid her and her son were going to run out of bread. And Elijah said to her, hey, make me a loaf of bread and I promise you that God will provide for you. Your, your supplies will not run out until this famine is over. And it, it came to pass. But that wasn't in Israel. That was someone outside of Israel. Verse 27, there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed. Only Naaman, the Syrian. Naaman was an army commander from another nation that had leprosy. Remember, he came and dipped himself in the Jordan River and God healed him. But again, he left these people in Israel, many of them with leprosy, and went to this man. What's Jesus getting at here? I told you this is about the most unpopular thing he could say. He's like, look, I didn't just come for you. You reject me? My mission involves people outside of Nazareth, outside of Galilee, and not just that, outside of Israel. I came to be a blessing to all people. And there were many people in Israel at that time that would have cringed at that because they had this exclusive mindset, the Messiah is coming for us. He's saying, no, I didn't just come for you. I came for the salvation of the world, for all who would believe. So instead of assuaging their, their opinion, he he. He riles things up even more. And I think about Jesus here. I've heard the example that he was more of a thermostat than he was a thermometer. What's that mean as we think about our own lives? When, when he went into a room, he set the temperature. He said, this is the truth. This is what God says. You can respond however you choose to it, but this is what I'm walking in. He set the temperature. A lot of us live like thermometers, though. We... We gauge what's going on around us and we try to just match that temperature in the culture. We want to say what people want to hear. We don't want to say what they don't want to hear. We look at Jesus. I say, be a thermostat. He was a spirit-led ambassador, not a politician looking to please the crowd. Now we're going to see their, their reaction explode over. 
Verse 28, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. What's he talking about going to other people, leaving us because we've rejected them? What is this? They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. And we're a long way from verse 22, right? Remember 22, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words. <laughs> come a long way in one short message. Watch what happens. But he walked right through the crowd, went on his way. <laughs> I love that. It doesn't tell us how he did it. We don't know if, if he went into invisible mode and just escaped or if he just walked through as is with God protecting him and not allowing them to touch him. We don't know how he did it, but the, the idea here is that God is in control. And you can be bold in preaching the message that he's put in his word and in your life because until he says it's your time, you ain't going nowhere. You see this in the book of Acts too. You can lock me up, but if God wants me out of jail, I'm out. Yeah, sometimes it is time for the end. There were some of those men uh, in prison, James right in the text in Acts that was executed by Herod, but that's because it was his time. Until it's your time, ain't nobody going to take you out. So here's the idea. Trust God when you're rejected because he's got a plan. Your trust in God has to mean more to you than what the, all these people think. You've got to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that his will is what drives the circumstance. That enables you to be bold. We've all got a choice. You remember what Simeon had said about Jesus early on as, as he was a baby. So Simeon blessed them in the temple and said to Mary, his mother, this child, Jesus, is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. That's what Jesus did when he went there. He revealed the thoughts of their hearts. And that's what happens to each one of us when we encounter Jesus. The thoughts of our hearts are revealed before him. You believe, you rise. You don't believe, you reject, you fall. And the choice is what we see in John chapter 1. Which camp will you fall in this morning? He was in the world. No, the world was made through him. The world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. There's one option, one choice. The other is this, verse 12, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Father, I thank you for this glimpse into Jesus' early ministry. Just to imagine that room full of hometown friends, family, co-workers sitting there and going from being amazed and thankful for your gracious words, Jesus, to wanting to kill you. Lord, it causes us to look at our own hearts. You've given us your word. You've given us your truth. And, and you've told us in this passage today that you long to work today in our lives and you want to use us in the lives of those around us. And we're faced with the same choice that crowd 
face that day? Will we believe you? Will we receive you, take you at your word and say, all right, I'm in. Show me where you want to use me today. I believe. Or are we skeptical? Are we angry at you? Are we upset at what you say in your word? Father, help us to receive you, to receive your truth, to receive your son, to walk in the power of his spirit. Lord, I pray for the folks I mentioned. I pray for Clark. Uh, Lord, you want to work in his life. And I pray that as we got a group of people here that will commit to praying for him in the Bronx, New York, that you would turn his life around. Lord, whether it's a phone call out this way or someone that he encounters there or something you want to show him directly in your word or a YouTube video about Lecrae. Who knows, Lord? Turn his life around. Work today. I pray for this marriage that's in healing now. God, please continue to work there. And, and as it grows and solidifies, and as they talk with others about it, let it be a light to the world that, yes, freedom from captivity is possible in all of our sin in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for healing on our street, opportunities to speak the hope and good news of Jesus. I pray that for each one in this room, Lord, that you'd give us all those opportunities as we believe and receive your words. In Jesus' name, amen.